podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? It's a two-footed podcast, Monday the 2nd of November, and we've got a busy, busy show. Lots to talk about, lots to cover, so let's get right into it. First and foremost, Friday evening, we had Wolverhampton Wanderers beating Crystal Palace 2-0 in what was a fairly timid game of football. Uh, Wolves got two early goals. Rehan Etnuri got his uh, debut goal after only 18 minutes. Really, really good finish from... A player I think is going to be tr- a tremendous success there. Uh, really clever pickup by Wolves in the summer transfer market. And then Daniel Pedence, uh, about 10 minutes later, adding a second. And from there, it kind of became a, a bit of a cat and mouse game. It reminded me a lot of Wolves against Sheffield United on the opening day of the season when Wolves got that early 2-0 lead and then just sort of sat back and let the opposition have the majority of, of the play. And that's exactly what happened here. Palace dominated possession from that point on, but were unable to fashion any real chances. A couple of moments where they looked like they might be able to break through, but Wolves held solid defensively. Uh, Milojojevic sent off late uh, for a very, very bad tackle in truth. Uh, the big talking point coming out of this game for me is the continued absence of Adama Traore from the Wolves starting 11. I'm not really sure what the issue is, but they do look quite easy to hold out without him. He is their difference maker. He is that game changer, the line breaker, the one who can really make a difference when games are close. They didn't need him here. That's fair. But I I don't really understand how he's not starting. I would say he is arguably their best player after Ruben Neves. You might put Raul Jimenez above him as well. But outside of those two, there's nobody else. Wolves had some good moments. Uh, Dan Donker was unlucky not to score a couple of goals in this one. Uh, I thought Wolves looked balanced in midfield. Semedo, Dan Donker, Neves, and Nuri across. I thought that was really solid, uh, really creative, inventive when they needed to be. But up front, I, I just felt they felt a little bit stale, a little bit easy to play against, a little bit predictable. Yes, I know they got the two goals, but I'm looking at, Games coming up against better teams than Crystal Palace, teams with more ambition than Crystal Palace. And in truth, teams that have a better central defensive pairing than Koyate, who's a midfielder, and Scott Dan, who is, to be fair to him, he's an average central defender. Uh, Nathaniel Klein and Patrick Van Anhol playing at fullback. Klein has been out for a long, long time. It's great to see him back on the pitch playing again. He looked a little bit rough, a little bit ready, uh, a little bit rusty, I should say. Um, and Van Aanholt the same. I mean, he he hasn't been in the team this season because of injury. Mitchell has been playing left back and, and has done a great job. But Van Aanholt has come back in and, again, looked a little bit rusty, looked short of match practice. I think the Palace performance is something they can take a little bit of heart from. But at the same time, the lack of inventiveness when Easy's not on the pitch is quite striking. And if they want to get the most of the Batshuayi and take some of the pressure off Zaha, 
I think they need to get EC into the team a bit more often from the start, not not coming off the bench as he has in recent weeks. Uh, he needs to be starting games. And I also think Jordan Ayew, if they're playing 4-3-3, would be a better option than Andros Townsend. You could take Jeff Schlupp out, put EC into that midfield three, put Ayew in instead of Townsend. I think you'd be a, a much more threatening team in attack. Uh, on to Saturday then. Manchester City won Sheffield United nil. And another disappointing performance from Sheffield United. Very, very flat. Didn't play like a team who are in the position they're in, which is one point from now seven games. I thought City played quite well, had some really nice creative moments. Um, Aaron Ramsdale made a couple of very good saves to keep them out. Eventually, though, Kyle Walker with a lovely, lovely goal, long-range strike, lovely little bit of bend on it to just whip it around the keeper's hand and into the bottom corner. The type of goal we've seen Kyle Walker score before. Um, Sheffield United's only real chance in this game came very late on when Sander Berger managed to break into the box and pull it back for John Lundstrom. Lundstrom skied a shot. It wasn't a, wasn't a big chance. It wasn't a great chance, but it was a chance. And that was all they really managed in the game. And to me, that's a little bit concerning. You know, I didn't think they'd be in this position. I thought they would be, you know, around about where we see Palace and West Ham at the moment. But now I am very, very concerned about Sheffield United and where they'll go from here. They've got a couple of tough games coming up as well. They've got Chelsea next. So you don't fancy their chances in that one. And if West Brom win tonight, all of a sudden they're four points below Brighton, five below West Brom, and that gap does start to open up. And it can get difficult to try and pull that gap back can get difficult. I know it's still early in the season. I know there's still, you know, over 90 points to play for. But if you start to fall behind early, it can become very difficult to make that ground up. So concerning times for Sheffield United, um, but a, a good win for City, and it gets them back on track a little bit, pushes them up into the top half. They're now 10th. They do have a game in hand, and if they win that, they will go to second. So despite not having the best of starts to this league campaign, because the league has been so strange this year, City do still find themselves in quite a strong position. You'd expect them to win that game in hand. And that, like I say, will launch them into second and, and they'll be more than happy with that. Um, actually, excuse me, they will launch them into third on goal difference behind Spurs. Uh, level and points at Spurs, but behind them on goal difference. Uh, after that, then, we got Burnley against Chelsea. Really attacking lineup from Chelsea in this game, which was interesting to see. They went with Havertz and Mount as, as twin eights. N'Golo Kante is the only real midfielder in there. Zayic, Abraham, and, and Timo Werner up front. Two attacking fullbacks as well. And for the majority, it worked. It did work. Burnley offered so little in this game. They had an early chance through Ashley Barnes. He made an absolute hames of it. And after that, Burnley were all at sea. At sixes and sevens defensively, which is really unusual for them. But the movement of Chelsea, the incision of Chelsea. I thought Mason Mount had an exceptional game. I thought his work rate, his pressing, his willingness to pick up the second ball and drive forward, his clever passing, I thought it was all on, on display here. Um, Hakim Zayic gets the first goal of the game. And in truth, Nick Pope should do a lot better. 
it's a fairly tame shot, but it is a nice move that leads to it. Uh, but Pope needs to do better. There's absolutely nothing he can do about the second goal. It's a bullet header from Kurt Zuma. And then Timo Werner wraps it up nice and tight with a bow on it uh, with the third goal. After some good work from Hakim Zayic to lay, lay it on a plate from... That's a simple finish in a 1v1 situation. It's a good result for Chelsea. It's a good performance from Chelsea. There's still a couple of defensive issues. Like I say, that chance for Ashley Barnes came from a defensive lapse. Um, but... Mendy's had a great start. I think that's five clean sheets out of six performances, which is really promising. They won't be able to play like that against the majority of the teams in the league because they will get carved apart. That was a a terrible display by Burnley. And again, like Sheffield United, you have to be really concerned about them now. One point from six. They do have that game in hand um, after their first game was called off due to the European commitments of, of the Manchester clubs last year. That game and the, the Villa game were called off. But they've got Brighton next, then Palace, then City, then Everton, then Arsenal, then Villa in their next six. There's no easy games there. Um, away to Brighton will be difficult. Very contrasting styles, but they're going to need to start picking up points. This looks like a team shorn of any real belief in themselves. And in truth, it it is just what I said at the start of the summer, at the start of the season. The lack of investment in this team is costing them. Ben Mee is out. Jack Cork is out. The rest of their team is there, but two injuries and the drop-off is massive. Long, I'm sorry, he's not a Premier League caliber player. Neither is Dale Stevens at this point. And having those two big weaknesses in the team has really cost them so far this season. Uh, I am very, very concerned about Burnley. I, th- I do still, I do still back Sean Dyche. I do still think Sean Dyche is one of the six or seven best managers in the league, but he really needs to turn it around and turn it around very, very quickly. Uh, then we had Liverpool against West Ham, and we had a bit of controversy. Mo Salah goes down under a challenge from Masuaka, and it's a foul. I mean, there's no other way around it. He Masuaka kicks the bottom of Mo's foot. Now Salah does make the most of it. He does go down a little bit theatrically, and that is absolutely fair, but it is not a dive. It is a foul, and that is the be-all and end-all of it. It is a foul. Um, what that has led to, though, is is a, a backlash against Salah from match of the day, Gary Lineker, um, and then Tony Cascarino. With a, and I don't even want to call it an article today, because that would imply that this thing was well written this was a collection of words strewn about in crayon and thrown at a wall um where he basically says you know like nobby styles would be ashamed of this um firstly you should be ashamed of yourself to bring nobby styles who's just passed away into this conversation secondly where is the article on the other dives from the weekend? The actual dives, the ones that were waved off by referees, the one that's, ones that should have drawn yellow cards. Where is the outrage at that? Uh, if we want to talk about Mo Salah, yes, he does sometimes go down very easily. No question about that. He does sometimes go down easily. But what about all the times he doesn't? What about all the times he gets into the box, has an arm around his neck, and stays on his feet? Mo Salah had the most touches in the penalty box per penalty given 
in Europe over the last two seasons. Think about that for a second. The amount of times that guy has the ball in the box and how rarely he gets a penalty. So it's clearly not from diving. It's clearly not from cheating. He costs himself penalties by staying on his feet. And Tony Cascarino should be absolutely ashamed of himself. The article is, like I say, it's like someone wrote it in crayon, tore the pieces up and threw them at a wall. It is hilariously bad. And to bring Nobby Styles, the memory of Nobby Styles, one of the icons of English football, to bring him into it, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be absolutely ashamed of yourself, as should the lads on Match of the Day, and I'll get to them in a minute. Um, Pablo Fernandes had put West Ham 1-0 up in this game. Uh, a scruffy finish, but a, a decent move from West Ham. Poor from Henderson, Wijnaldum, and Alison Becker. Um, in allowing Fornals the goal, poor from Joe Gomez with the headed clearance. I'm not sure what he was trying to accomplish, but it's a really weak header. It lands to Fornals inside the 18-yard box after he drifted past Henderson, who paid him no heed. Wijnaldum didn't react and go and close him. And like I say, it's kind of a scuffed finish that bubbles into the corner. My assumption is that Alison Becker was expecting a much more powerful shot and was thrown off by how weak a shot it was and didn't get down quickly enough. Salah then gets the penalty just before half-time to put Liverpool one all, And then Diogo Jota wins it for Liverpool in the 85th minute, having had a goal chalked off by VAR a little bit earlier. Great move by Liverpool. Wijnaldum drives forward, feeds it to um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, back to Henderson, simple ball across to Jordan Shaqiri, and then a lovely defence-splitting ball to the onrushing uh, Jota, who scores again for Liverpool. He has been a tremendous signing so far, making a case to start. I think there's very little to be said in defence of Roberto Firmino in terms of keeping him in the team. Jota does look like he has earned that start, and it will be interesting to see uh, just what Jurgen Klopp does in the coming weeks with that one. David Moyes came out after the game and complained about the penalty I would say David Moyes needs to take a long look in the mirror because West Ham were having real joy until they scored. They were they were the better team. That goal didn't come against the run of play. They were the better team until they scored. And then Moyes went back seven, one in midfield, one out wide, one up front, and just started launching the ball towards Sebastian Haller. And Nathaniel Phillips just had that all day. Absolutely lovely. Nathaniel Phillips is a very limited central defender, but he is he is good in the air. That is the one area in which he excels. And West Ham played right into that. It was B-Tech management from Moyes after a good run of form. Absolutely B-Tech management from Moyes. Uh, Liverpool lucky to get, get away with the win again, as they were against Sheffield United. The better team for the majority of the game, without question. But there is something lacking in that team. Without Virgil van Dijk, they're, just, they're not the same proposition. But no van Dijk, no Thiago, Naby Keita still out, Matip still out, top of the league. He, as Liverpool fans, we're very, very happy with how things are going in terms of the league position. The form, the, the actual performances, they need to improve drastically, uh, especially coming with Man City coming up next weekend. But... Uh, you, you know, you're top. You can't argue with that. Um, 
jumping then to Sunday's games, Aston Villa against Southampton. And for 60 minutes, I would say Southampton put in the best performance I've seen by anybody all season long. I just thought they were brilliant. I thought Ralph Hasenhutl got his tactical game plan absolutely perfect. And they scored four of the best goals you're going to see anywhere this season. They had one disallowed earlier on. Vestergaard header uh, ruled out for offside. A couple of minutes later, though, the same guy being marked by John McGinn, who gives up about six, seven inches of height to Vestergaard. Um, an absolute bullet header with a lovely bit of curl to just bring it inside the far post. Great, great delivery. Uh, great, great goal. Really, really good start for Southampton. Absolutely what they deserved. And then it got better and better for them. James Ward-Prowse with two of the best free kicks you're going to see anywhere this year. Masterful technique. Brilliant pace on the ball. Lovely bend. Lovely dip. He is as good as you will find on, on set pieces in the English game right now. He is playing at a tremendously high level. Uh, really, really impressive performance. Into the second half, more of the same. Southampton's still the better team. Villa looking shell-shocked, looking, I don't want to say disinterested, but a little bit disinterested at this point. And Danny Ings scores an absolute belter from 22, 23 yards out. Plants it in off the bottom of the, the crossbar. No chance at all for Emmy Martinez. He had no chance with any of these goals. This is a game where a goalkeeper has conceded four and had absolutely no chance of saving any of them. They were just brilliant goals. Tyron Mings gets one back for Villa. Nice bit of work by Grealish. Good cross into the box. Mings up with a header to score and get Villa a little bit of life. And then we get a horrible moment when Danny Ings gets injured. And Danny Ings has come back from two serious knee injuries in recent years, both while he was at Liverpool. He tore his ACL in one of the first training sessions under Jurgen Klopp. And then on his way back to fitness, did the other knee and missed the best part of two years of football. And it derailed any chance he had of, of making it at Liverpool. He's gone to Southampton. He had an iffy first year there. But last season exploded into form. One of the best strikers in the league last year. Has started off this season in great form as well. Looked a good bet for Golden Boot this year. And goes down in a nasty looking incident now. There's no blame on anybody. It is just one of those unfortunate moments. His knee buckles. It gets weirdly extended and it twists in a bizarre way. He is audibly heard screaming about his knee. Ralph Hasenhutl has come out after the game and said it does not look good. A couple of physios and sports scientists looking at the incident have said, best case scenario, it's an MCL, worst case it it could be the whole ball game. It could be the, the ACL, um, maybe even the patella tendon. So Danny Ings could be facing a long time out again. And it is just, it is the cruelty of football that he has done so much to come back 
after those two horrible injuries. And if he is to miss another year in his prime at 28 years of age, it is going to be a long road back. Now, you would back him every time to come back because his mentality is outstanding and because you want him to succeed because Danny Ying seems like a really, really good guy. Behind everything else you can say about a footballer, the human side of things is what's important. And Danny Ings seems like a top-class human being. And he's done things the hard way, you know. He hasn't had it easy in the game. Um, I, I'm really hopeful that he'll come back because last season, 25 goals in 42 games. This season, 5-7 and seven in all competitions to get himself started, get on the board. He was looking sharp. He was he was looking lethal. He'd found his level. He was excelling. Um, if he's out for an extended period of time, that is just absolutely cruel. Absolutely cruel on, on a player who deserves a lot better. Uh, Villa fight back late on. A, a penalty from Molly Watkins and, and a late consolation from Grealish. Uh, both in stoppage time. I think Southampton's heads had gone a little bit after the after the injury to Ings. Um the Grealish goal took a deflection. Whether he gets it or not, I'm not sure. But he's been credited with it so far. Um, but just that game, a brilliant 60 minutes from Southampton and then the overriding thoughts afterwards are with Danny Ings, uh, wishing him a very, very speedy recovery. I would hope it's if it's if it has to be an injury, I would hope it is the MCL. And nothing more than that, because, like I say, he deserves he deserves better. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, then we had uh, Everton losing second game in a row to Newcastle, and in truth, deserving to lose. Newcastle weren't particularly good, but did have good moments. I like the lineup from Steve Bruce. I like that he played Jacob Murphy as a wing back. I thought it really suited his game, and him and Lewis. Uh, were very energetic and provided good width down the flanks. Newcastle were the better side here, but Everton's... When I saw Everton's team sheet, I was like, that's that's not promising. No pace in the team. Other than Decore, no real drive in the team. No dynamism. Playing Sigurdsson and Gomes behind Calvert-Lewin, they will slide passes for him, but there was no real width. You were... Relying on John Joe Kenny in his first performance of the season and then Kunku making his league, league debut to provide width. And both of them struggled on the day. Um, Newcastle were able to pin them both back. St. Maximum was working the flanks. Almiron was working the flan- flanks. He had Lewis and Murphy providing support. Everton looked stale. They looked short of ideas. Without James Rodriguez, there was no creativity. Without Richarlison, there was no outlet. Without Dina, there's no provider. So, you know, you take, look, you take three of the most important players out of any team and they're going to struggle, but Everton did struggle in this one. Um, Callum Wilson gets a penalty, and a, again, a rightful penalty, and then uh, gets a second goal from a tap-in. Lovely work from Ryan Frazier. Great to see him back playing. Uh, and great to see him with a smile on his face because it's been a while. Hopefully, his, you know, he's in a better place now than he was when we last saw him at Bournemouth. Um, but good to see Callum Wilson continuing to score goals. He's made a great start to life on the tune. And and look, 
the players seem really happy at Newcastle right now. So whatever can be said about Steve Bruce, his players seem to enjoy playing for him. He does seem to be a good man-manager. Tactically, obviously, there's limitations on what he's willing to do. Whether that's just limitations he puts on himself or limitations of what he's capable of, I have no idea. Uh, But this has been Steve Bruce for the majority of his managerial career. But his players absolutely adore him. So they all seem happy there. Um, Everton get the late comeback goal with Calvert-Lewin tapping in at the front post, but Truth be told, they didn't deserve anything from this game. Everton were very, very poor, uh, worse than they were last week. And it is a little bit of a concern that, you know, you take a couple of players out of the team, they're unable to keep that same level. I was surprised that Bernard and Iwobi weren't the two that started. I thought that would have been the smarter thing. I thought they looked more dangerous when those two came on. It was great to see Chang Tusen come back. I mean, I thought he was out for quite a while longer, but it was great to see him come back. Didn't really offer much in the game, but you never like to see players out out injured. So fantastic that he is now back fit. Uh, Followed that up with a game that used to be, used to be the marquee game in English football. Manchester United versus Arsenal. This was the game. For years. This. This was not the game. Uh, I do think Arsenal played very very well. Tactically. Very well set up. Defensive structure. Very very good. I thought Gabriel had a tremendous. Tremendous game. Uh, Really put down a marker. For what a. What a player he's going to be. And really showed. The guy at the other end of the field. What it is to be a quality centre back. Um, I thought Arsenal were very disciplined. thought they had a clear idea of what they wanted to do, but I do think they were a little bit passive. My only, only negative comment on them would be they were a little bit passive in this game. I thought there was opportunities for them to exploit this Manchester United team, and they didn't. But they do get their win. Uh, penalty from Aubameyang uh, after a stupid tackle from Paul Pogba. Bellerin is going nowhere. I mean, he is literally moving away from goal, going nowhere. And why Pogba decides to throw his foot in, I don't know. It is a penalty. Aubameyang dispatches it. And Arsenal get a big win. Uh, it's a big win for them. It gets them back on track. You have to be impressed with Arteta. I, I still think there's a lot more we need to see from him. Like I've said, the the, the lack of aggression uh, in an attacking sense is a little bit concerning. Now, defensively, they were very aggressive. Highlighted by that insane pressing from Mohamed um, Elneny in the final minutes, him and Partey dominated the midfield. Thomas Partey was the best player on the pitch, and he has shown that uh, a lot of clubs are very, very silly not to challenge Arsenal for his signature because Arsenal basically got him with no competition at all. So, you know, there was other clubs that needed that type of player. One of them was Manchester United. Manchester United spent similar money on Donny van de Beek. Not only is Thomas Partey a better player than Donny van de Beek, he's also far more suited to what United need. But United didn't make that move. Um, God knows what they were thinking. I... Their performance was awful, absolutely dreadful. They had one really good moment, 
Uh, a brilliant ball from Rashford that split the defence. And Greenwood with a shot from a narrow angle that, that Leno dealt with well. But aside from that, I, I genuinely thought United were awful. And this is this is just them in the Premier League this season. They were awful against Palace. They were awful against Brighton. They were awful against Spurs. They had a good last 20 against Newcastle. But they were awful for the first 70. They were awful last week against Chelsea. And they were awful here. They've had 20 good minutes in the league this year. You contrast that with the Champions League performances. They're such a Jekyll and Hyde team. They went with the same diamond setup that they had uh, against Leipzig. A couple of changes to the personnel. But it would be hard to argue that that's not United's best eleven. It would be hard to argue that. Now, I don't think Fred is at all suited to playing the holding midfield role. I think he's much better. If you're going to play a diamond, he's much better as one of the two in the engine of it. But McTominay can't play that holding role. And with Matic having played midweek, they obviously wanted to give him you know, a bit of a rest. So he came on. They shifted from the diamond to 4-2-3-1 at half time. And it didn't make any difference. It really didn't. They just they were all over the place defensively. In midfield, there was no real structure, no real identity, no passing ideas, no creativity. I don't really know what Paul Pogba does at this point. Paul Pogba is a world-class talent. And at Juventus, he looked destined to become a world-class player. But you can't point to any single Paul Pogba season at Manchester United and say he was world-class that season. You could look at his, I think, his second season and say he was good that season. But aside from that, he has been poor since joining Manchester United. And this is year five. And yes, there's games here and there where he's very, very good. He was very good against Leipzig. But this is an, an, a ninety million pound footballer we're talking about. A guy we were told when United signed him, this is the best midfield player in the world. This is a star. This guy is going to change things. He's going to bring back the success. And all we've heard ever since is United need to buy players to complement him. United needs to buy players to unlock him. Oh, they're not playing the right system. Oh, he's been used wrong. Now, he has been used wrong at times. There's no question about that. But dear God, can he not adapt? Can Paul Pogba not lift the players around him? Why does he need others to lift him? He is the £90 million midfielder. He's meant to be the one. He's meant to be the guy in midfield. Now, two weeks ago, they extended his contract for an extra year because they had an option in the original deal to trigger that extra year. That took them off the clock a little bit because his contract was due to expire summer 2021. But now they face a really interesting dilemma because they're still on the clock. And they have two choices. Well, they have three choices. They can sell him. They're not going to get their money back. 
nobody is going to pay that type of money. Maybe Real Madrid, if they were flush with cash and feeling particularly stupid that day, would do it. But nobody else, maybe PSG, just because he's French. But even at that, I don't think they'll do it. But you're not going to get the money back from him. Not, and it's like the thing is, they paid 89 million for him. They also paid about 40 million to Mino Riola. They paid 40 million to the agent. Paul Pogba has cost United nigh on 200 million in terms of transfer fee, agent fees, bonuses, wages, etc., etc., etc. And he's given so little back. So they can sell him and take a hit. And they can just sort of shrug their shoulders and move on. They can give him a contract extension, which would need to be a pay rise on the 250 grand a week he's currently on, or 300 grand a week that he's on. So what are you talking? 400 grand a week? 350, 400 grand a week? Without questions, that's what he's going to ask for. Do you really want to be paying Paul Pogba 17 and a half to 20 million a year for this? For what he's shown? Are you going to give him a five-year contract that he's never going to live up to? You already gave him one. Do you want to give him another one? Is that the plan? Should I keep him? And what? Buy more players to unlock him? Who? Who are you going to buy to unlock Paul Pogba. What system are you going to to play. To unlock Paul Pogba. What responsibilities are you going to give Paul Pogba. To unlock Paul Pogba. And this is not meant to be me bashing Paul Pogba. Because I loved Paul Pogba at Juventus. I thought he was magnificent. And I wanted him to succeed at United because tribalistic nonsense put aside, you always want great players in the Premier League performing at their best level to raise the level of the Premier League. And I thought when Pogba signed, this is a big moment for the Premier League. This is a big star coming in from Juventus. He's going to raise the level of the Premier League. He's going to set the bar for midfield play and everybody's going to have to live up to that. Hasn't happened. Has not happened. At no point in his tenure at Manchester United has Paul Pogba been one of the three best midfielders in England. Not at any point. And you look at the top teams in the country. Liverpool wouldn't have him. He's a better player than Jordan Henderson. But he wouldn't be better for Liverpool than Jordan Henderson is. He wouldn't be willing to accept that role that Henderson has accepted. He's certainly more talented. He can do far more things on a pitch. But he wouldn't do for Liverpool what Henderson does. He wouldn't be willing to. City wouldn't touch him. Not a hope. They tried a couple of years ago when there was talk that Mino Riola was trying to push him out of United because there was a fallout with Mourinho. But I think that was more just to wind United up than anything else. Spurs wouldn't have him because Mourinho's there. As great as he is, or as great as he could be, because he's not he isn't great. There's no there's no way to say Paul Pogba is currently a great player. He could be great. But 
for whatever reason, something is missing. And is he willing to accept a functional role in the midfield if it's what's best for the team? It might not be best for him and for his brand, but it might be best for the team. Like if they'd bought Thomas Partey in the summer like they should have and played him and Pogba together, would that have unlocked Pogba? Because I think it would give Pogba the platform to play from. Whether he would be willing to accept, you know, being a deep-lying playmaker and not having the freedom to adventure forward and having defensive responsibilities, I don't know if he's willing to do that. He does it for France. He's never shown any inkling to do it for United. After the game, we were treated to the usual nonsense of Gary Neville, Roy Keane, uh, everybody else, making excuses for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, blaming the players. Um, What was funny was Neville, in trying to defend Ole, actually laid out the case for why Ole's not doing a good job. There's no plan, there's no identity, there's no structure, there's no patterns of play. Defensively, they're all over the place. The midfield is a mess. And up front, they're relying on individual brilliance rather than actual structured team play. And they have individual brilliance. Bruno Fernandes is brilliant. Rashford is brilliant. Greenwood is brilliant. Martial is brilliant. They have brilliant players. They're not being managed well. They're not being coached well. And Roy Keane came out and said there's a lack of leaders. Neville said the squad is unbalanced. He once again tried to make the case for Jadon Sancho, but strangely did it while talking about playing a diamond and how McTominay is not comfortable playing on the right-hand side of a diamond and shifting out to the, out to the wide areas. Um, Jadon Sancho wouldn't play that role. He criticised Juan Bissaka for his lack of ability going forward. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer signed him. He criticised Harry Maguire. Oh, Ole signed him as well. Criticised the squad. Ole put the squad together. Ole has spent 250 million. 240, 250 million. This is Ole's squad now. Whether he signed all the players or not, this is his squad. He's at two summer windows. If there's players there he didn't want, he could have got rid of them. He didn't have to buy Harry Maguire for 80 million. He didn't have to buy Juan Bissaka for 50 million. He didn't have to buy any of these players. Certainly didn't have to buy Danny Van de, Donny van de Beek for 40 million and have him on the bench to come on for 15 minutes here and 10 minutes there. This was a dreadful performance from United. And it's on Ollie, 100%. The final game of the weekend uh, was Tottenham at home to Brighton. Tottenham were poor in this game. Um, It reminded me of their performance against Everton. They get ahead with a penalty by Harry Kane on 13 minutes when Harry Kane backs into Adam Lallana, who is jumping to win the ball, and is somehow given a penalty. Originally, he was given as a free kick on the edge of the area, And then it was given as a penalty. But let me say it again. Harry Kane backed into Adam Lallana, who was jumping to win the ball. 
Adam Lallana had only eyes for the ball. Harry Kane only had eyes for Lallana. It is a foul by Harry Kane. It is not a foul by Adam Lallana. Not in any way, shape or form is it a foul by Adam Lallana. And a journalist I quite like, I won't name him because I do quite like him, um, has, he's, a Spurs, he's a Spurs reporter, comes out and says it's a foul no matter what way you look at it. It is a foul. It's a foul by Harry Kane on Adam Lallana. If a, if a striker backs into a centre-back who's coming out to meet a high ball and jumps and that striker backs in and takes his legs out, it is a foul by the striker 10 times out of 10. This was a foul by Harry Kane 10 times out of 10. This is not the same as Kane sensing someone running up on him, freezing and letting them run into the back of him and then flailing on the floor. That is a foul in favour of Harry Kane. This is different. This is dangerous play by Harry Kane. This is Harry Kane undercutting the legs of Adam Lallana. Lallana could easily have gotten hurt. And somehow Harry Kane gets a penalty out of it. And the narrative, the narrative around this is, oh, it's clever play by Harry Kane. Well, Harry Kane also dived in this game blatantly. It was waved off by the referee. Uh, there was no mention of Harry Kane being a cheat. He hadn't insulted the memory of Nobby Styles. Now, what's the difference between Harry Kane and Mo Salah? Oh, Mo Salah has an afro. Oh, he doesn't have an afro anymore, so it can't be the afro. Maybe it's because Mo Salah's left-footed. Is that what it is? Is, that, is, is it an anti-left-footed player thing? Because, you know, the establishment are mostly righties. Is that what it is? Or is it the fact that Mo Salah is a Muslim foreigner and Harry Kane is the white knight of English football? You decide. You decide which it is that carries the narrative of Harry Kane being clever for cheating and Mo Salah being a nasty little foreigner for over-exaggerating a clear foul. You decide which it is. I pretty much know which way I'm looking. Um, that goal should not have stood. It should have been a free out to Brighton. There's no question. On the flip side, Brighton's goal should have been ruled out. Uh, Solly March fouls Pierre-Emil Heusberg. There's no way to look at it other than it is a very bad foul. It's potentially a red card foul, if I'm being honest. Um, but somehow it's not given, even on review. And Tariq Lamptey, uh, good finish, but it, like I say, it shouldn't have, st- shouldn't have stood. Uh, but Garrett Bale does get the winner. Lovely moment for Bale. Good header from a good cross from Sergio Regulon, who has been a great signing for Spurs thus far. Um, Spurs deserved their win. They were the better team. Like I say, they didn't play well. It reminded me of the performance against Everton. But they are second in the league, and they will be very, very happy with that. Um, but the overriding things from this weekend are that VAR still sucks and that the British media has a serious problem with the narratives that they put forward on players. And those narratives are built around which player is one of ours and which player isn't. Um, but on the topic of Harry Kane, I want to finish with this. We've all heard Harry Kane speak. And... He can be a little bit difficult to understand at times, especially when he's ramped up and shouting. 
There's a clip going around on YouTube of, I think it's an outtake from an ESPN um, Zoom call with Mark Ogden, uh, a presenter called Alexis Nunes, who, who I'm not familiar with, and a producer who's unseen but can be heard. And they're basically mocking Harry Kane's speech in a shameful way. And neither of them have acknowledged this yet. And this clip came out over a day ago. Both of them have been active on social media since. And neither of them have acknowledged it. Now, I'm not calling for them to lose their jobs or anything like that. But a public apology and an apology to Harry Kane are absolutely warranted. And ESPN have not acknowledged this either. Which makes it even worse. As if they deem this to be okay. As I say, Harry Kane can be a little bit difficult to understand at times. But this mocking of a player's speech is a disgrace. Ogden says, should I do it in a Harry Kane impression? Or something along those lines. And Nunes and this producer idiot start slagging off the way he speeches. And Nunes finishes with, well, thank God he can play football because I hate listening to him talk. Well, isn't that terrible? How precious of you. It's an absolute disgrace. And ESPN should be ashamed of themselves. ESPN FC, in truth, is awful. It's an abomination. Their Twitter account is a show. Um, these Zoom calls are nonsense. Their punditry is garbage. Uh, ESPN, on the whole, is to be avoided for all things football-related. Uh, and probably all things all-related, in truth. But, um, yeah, Mark Ogden, Alexis Nunes, and Unseen Producer, each and every one of you owe Harry Kane an apology, and it has to be done in the public realm. Acknowledge what you've done. Acknowledge your ignorance. You don't know if Harry Kane has a speech impediment. I don't. It's not in, pub it's not in the public sphere if he does. But if he does, that's even worse. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Uh, as should, like I say, all the journalists, especially Tony Cascarino. And match of the day. Because match of the day is just the worst. It's absolutely just the worst. A former institution of football. Is, has just become. A cesspool. Of horrendous xenophobia. Absolute cesspool of it. Um, that is it. That is me for today. Before I get annoyed. Thank you as always for listening. Uh, I hope I haven't been too ranty today. I know I was a little bit. But that is just what it is. Um, don't want to make this show anyway, in any way political, well, I, I kind of do. Um, America, if you're listening, you have a responsibility. That man needs to go. And he needs to go tomorrow. So get out and vote. Vote blue, up and down your ticket. Get that man as far away from any position of importance as we possibly can. Uh, thank you to eplindex.com for your continued support and the platform that you give me to do this podcast, EPLindex.com is a really good source of all Premier League news and information. Check out the quality writing on there from people like Jake, Jake Jackman and Dan Fitzgerald uh, and myself, of course, uh, and the Tad Predictable podcast with Tadiwa, that can be found there too, as can the EPL Roundtable podcast with my man Kevin DeVries. Uh, thank you to 
Liberty Shield, our presenting sponsor who keep the lights on. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, the producer, who does such an excellent job of piecing this together for me. And thank you to Fox Hunt for our title music. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.